0: Visit ADHDEssentials.com for more details. Before we get into today's episode, I want to let you know that I'll be joining my friend Eric Tivers in his weekly ADHD Rewired live Q&A. You can register for it at ADHDRewired.com/events. Eric's Q&A is aimed primarily at adults. Let me know if you'd like one for kids and parents. If so. I'll gladly set up an ADHD Essentials live Q&A in the near future. Maybe I'll even get Eric to join me. Email me at brendan at com with your questions, and let me know if you're interested. Welcome to Episode 5. In today's episode, we're talking to Cara Fleming. Cara is a school psychologist and a specialist in helping ADHD kids transition from high school to the workforce and college. We'll be discussing the transition from high school to college and the workforce, what to expect when getting your child tested for ADHD, and how Kara went from studying to be a geneticist to wanting to be a poet. It wasn't the course load. All right, let's get rolling. So we're going to talk about the transition for kids from high school to college
1: today. Yeah, yeah. Actually, a lot of what I'm going to say today and what we're going to talk about is not just from high school to college, but from high school to a post-secondary world. There are a lot of options out there, good vocational programs, training programs, and a lot of this information will apply to that as well.
0: What are the big blocks that we need to remember for that transition?
1: Well, I think a really, really important piece of, of the puzzle here that we have to keep in mind is that at this stage in the game, the student has to be involved. I know a lot of times, as a parent of a teenager myself, I feel like I want to go and do all these things, get things ready for my kid. This is really not that situation. This is a situation where you really have to have buy in from your kid the entire time. They have to be aware of what's happening, they have to be involved in what's happening, and they have to be able to make decisions about what's happening because there's nothing more expensive or more disheartening than a parent who really wants that college experience, maybe just a little bit more than their kid does.
0: That's especially good for kids with ADHD, because that buy-in is going to increase their engagement.
1: Right. So I guess before we can even talk about transitioning, we really have to talk about that buy-in. and. You know, a lot of ways to do that is through some very empowering conversations with your kid about their strengths, uh, their skill sets, um, areas where they've had success. One of the things is allowing kids the opportunity to take risks within reason and to fail at those risks so they can learn resiliency skills. Before we even go there, we should really talk about how important it is for kids to have something that they can succeed at because that's going to validate that the choices that you're going to be making together are super important. So if there's any way when you're involving your kid in this conversation, as hard as it is, uh, you know, really validating what your kid's saying. And, um, and
0: and that can be, that can be a challenge by itself, right? Because sometimes my goodness, sometimes parents who when they find out that their kids have a disability, right. in this case, ADHD, Yes. Not everyone processes that as well as would be beneficial. Like some, sometimes there's parents right, who still want right. their kid to be whatever it was that they thought they were going to be before the diagnosis. And that might not be sure. something that they're going to be successful at. That strengths approach is important, not just for the kids so that the kid knows their strengths and areas that they might need to work on, but also so the parents know their strengths and the areas they might need to work on. Because really good point. Sometimes, sometimes not only can parents sort of keep a view of this is, I always wanted my kid to be a lawyer. And even though it doesn't make any sense at all now, I still sort of want my kid to be a lawyer because I'm a lawyer and my dad was a lawyer.
1: Right. And oh, by the way, mom and dad, I really don't want to be a lawyer. I actually want to be a nuclear physicist.
0: And also sometimes parents can get so caught up in the disability that they have their eyes almost entirely on the disability. Like this is all the stuff my kid can't do. Well, now we have, let's look at what your kid can do. Let's look at what the strengths are. So that's cool
1: too. Yeah. So I guess the takeaway from that is your kid is your kid first. However, the disability is a, is a factor that has to be considered because you don't want to set them up for failure, but you don't want to lowball your expectations. So I guess with that in mind, now we're ready to have conversations with our with our kids. Um, we're ready to involve our kids. We're ready to empower our kids, and we're listening to our kids, even when they tell you they want to be a musical theater major, and you're dying inside, and you're like, okay. Uh, Not that there's anything wrong with that, but please don't live in my basement, Um, (laughs) but I digress. Okay, so now that we've done all those things, uh, the first thing we really wanna talk about is disability awareness. And you've already hit the nail right on the head. It's very, very important that the, the student has to be aware of what their disability is. And that means making sure that they've seen the documentation, or the diagnosis, or the if there's an IEP or a 504, that they are aware of exactly what their disability is. If the child takes medication, they need to know exactly what their medication is and what the medication is for. I mean, there's been a lot of times that I've interviewed high school students, and I said, are you currently on medication? Oh yeah, I, I don't know what for though. And to me, that's very, very disheartening because that's a transitional skill right there.
0: Right, and also, when should you be taking that medication? What should you be paying attention to for that medication? Like,
1: and what app can you put on your phone to remind you? Yeah.
0: <laughs> yeah. Because some ADHD meds, you take them in the morning. But if you forget to take it, don't take it at four o'clock in the afternoon because it's going to keep you up all night and it's going to throw everything out of whack. You right. just missed that day. And they right. need to know that when they're not home anymore.
1: Yeah. So that's definitely a big piece of the disability awareness and education. When a student goes to college or a post-secondary environment, they need to speak for themselves and say, this is what my disability is. I need to, you, know, they, you need to know what, what your services that you receive at your school now. Because contrary to popular belief, a 504 or an IEP isn't going to translate to college. And this is one of the biggest misnomers that people think, like, I've got to get my IEP turned into a 504 so colleges will honor it. That's not what colleges are essentially looking for. What they're looking for is, do you have a documented disability? Is the documentation legit? Is the documentation appropriate? Do you have services in place that you are currently using? Really, that's the biggest step in disability awareness is know what your diagnosis is, what services you require, and what services you've gotten in the past. And that's That's going to help you choose college programs that are appropriate, because if you need a moderate amount of accommodations, not all college programs are created equal. What services are out there on the college side? They're not all created equal. There are some colleges that really specialize in catering to an LD student, and they offer things like support centers. Learning centers. There are colleges that will offer an extended add-drop period for students with a um, a, a well-documented learning disability or ADHD. What you're going to look at here is, say, you're a student who is enrolled in three classes, and, and that's the other thing you want to consider too: is don't you don't always have to enroll in a full boat. You can you can start your college career by taking two classes, and that's okay. That's part of what's out there. And say the student is just really, really struggling. They're having a really tough time with the transition to college life. The option to withdraw from that class after really trying and maybe even getting almost to the finish line. But if it looks like that grade is not going to, contribute favorably to your GPA, some colleges will offer you the ability to drop that class and not have it appear from your transcript.
0: That's awesome. I wish I had that when I was in college because I right. definitely had a couple of classes where I, I remember at one point, my grandfather died and I just wasn't managing things as well as I could have. Right. Right. And I wound up, ended up getting by the skin of my teeth and a lot of negotiation, a D in right. one of my psychology classes. That was like a statistics course. Yeah, I should have been allowed to withdraw from that class. I was just right. on the outside of withdrawing.
1: So, not I mean, not all colleges do that. Again, these are things you need to ask for. So not all accommodations are things like, I get to take my test in a quiet room or I get extended time. There are a lot more creative things you can think about. The option to use assistive technology, that may be available to you. The other thing that may be available to you is things like extended deadlines, extended time for tests and things like that. But at no point is any college professor ever going to say to you, okay, it's time for your test, Brendan. I'm going to put you in a quiet room now with some extended time. In college, you have a letter. It is your job and your job only to approach that teacher or that professor and advocate for yourself. Hi, my name's Brendan. I have ADHD. Here's some documentation of that. Here's some accommodations that are most successful with me. How can I access these accommodations in your class?
0: And that's why at the high school level, and really even elementary and middle school level, why we push so hard to have kids self-advocate. Because eventually they're going to hit the point where they have to do it by themselves. And there isn't a parent that's going to contact the school. And if the parent does contact the school, the school may or may not entertain that.
1: Yeah. If a student is 18 years old and a parent contacts the school, the school will say, I'm sorry, we're not authorized to speak with you and if they say but i'm so worried about my child he's he's 18 years old but he's a man baby and i have to speak for him they're gonna say um no that you know they they won't so you really have to be aware that when you're in a college environment they will almost not even deal with a parent at all so you really have to help your kid develop those scripts and those skills for self-advocacy
0: just to reiterate we talked we've talked about extended ad drop which is awesome i I never would have thought of that as a, as a choice. Yeah, and that that's sort of an extended. That's a lot like an extended due date or an extended time on a right. test because you're what you're getting from that is an extended period of time to process what's going on and to right. analyze what's happening. And in this case, what you're processing and analyzing is not the test you're taking, but the whole class you're taking. Your is your ability to I have this do? experience. Right. Yeah.
1: Exactly. You know, I think a lot of times what people with ADHD need maybe even more than an extended due date is a student learning center or a peer tutor or an advisor that can actually sit down with them and help them not only understand what the assignment is, but then break it down and plan for it.
0: Right. I Um, have a number of friends who are college professors and I battle with them (laughs) because, because they keep saying, it's in the syllabus as though that solves all of the problems right. with the kids not doing this, the work. Right. That's, that doesn't matter. They need help breaking this task down. They need help reading your syllabus. One of the right. things I do with my clients when I work with them is I help them read the syllabus. We go right. through their college syllabus and we highlight where the assignments are and we flag the various pages. I graduated not too long ago from a local Massachusetts university. And my syllabus, I didn't get to the stuff that even mattered to me until page five or six, because the state of Massachusetts requires that there's all of this information about how I'm going to be taught. and You're not going to be discriminated
1: against. Right.
0: I don't care about any of that. None of that is important. What's important to me as a student is when do I go to class? When are the things due? How am I going (laughs) to be graded? That's all I really care about.
1: Right. I can eat cliff notes for that.
0: Some of my professors gave out two syllabi. One was the ridiculous one with all the state standards and regulations and stuff. And the other one was about a page and a half long and was like, this is when stuff is due. Syllabus for dummies, right? Right, yeah.
1: So, another thing I definitely think is important for people to understand is the difference between an IEP, a 504, a student learning plan. Not all plans are created equal either. And if your kid was on a 504 for ADHD, And that was based on a letter a doctor wrote to an elementary school in third grade. That 504 is essentially useless. That has really no weight for a college. That may get you accommodations in your current school environment, but a college is going to look at that. What was this disability based on? And if you said, you know, testing done in, you know, 2003, the college isn't even going to acknowledge it. A 504 plan is a accommodation plan. And that's really what you need to remember. A 504 plan is a legal document that protects a person with a disability. It states that there is a disability and that disability impacts a major life functioning. It specifies what major life functioning is impacted. In most cases, it's learning. And then it also specifies what accommodations this person needs to access a free and appropriate public education to have a level playing field like everybody else. Very, very common you see accommodations like extended time on tests, quiet room to take tests, uh, assignments will be broken down into chunks and things like that. But what we have to remember is if if a 504 plan is legal, it needs to be based on updated and well done documentation and testing. An IEP, is a document that is only honored within the school where a 504 is a document that protects against disabilities uh which you can use say if you're taking a state licensing exam or something like that an iep is only honored within the school if you have an iep in massachusetts and you move to connecticut they still have to honor it uh, but it's only a school document the difference the main difference between an iep and a 504 is that an IEP not only says there is a disability, it not only says that the disability impacts their ability to access their education, but it states that in order to make effective progress in school, the student has to have specifically designed instruction. Uh, And that's very, very important because basically what that means is this student needs something above and beyond traditional classroom educational Opportunities in order to make effective progress. So, for example, if I go into a classroom and I need to wear noise buffers on my ears because I'm super distracted, or if I need a teacher to hand me a graphic organizer so I can write, those are all done within a regular education setting. Those are accommodations. Those are things that we typically see on a 504. An IEP for specifically designed instruction is going to say, no, this kid needs direct coaching and organizational skills and strategies. This kid needs writing lessons this kid does not know how to write above and beyond the writing classes that they're having in high school they need to work with a coach or they need to work with someone to specifically design that instruction that's why an IEP has a service delivery grid and a 504 does
0: it and one of the things that not all parents realize is that the special education teachers in the schools are working very hard to help the kids that they that are on their caseload come off of the IEP right Not because they want to have less work to do, but because they want to see that kid flourish as they move forward. They want to see that kid find success in everything that they do. And as long as those accommodations and modified instruction exist, the kid's more likely to struggle. It doesn't guarantee that he will or she will, but they're more likely to. And so giving them those skills so they don't need organizational assistance anymore and they don't need help with their writing anymore. That's where we want to be headed.
1: Right, right. I mean, it's really one of the only businesses in the world where our goal is to be useless. Our goal is to not be needed anymore. And if you're helping, if you're doing a great job preparing a student to become more and more independent, then they need you less and less. Okay, so now that we've talked about the difference between an IEP and a 504, um, I probably should mention something like student support plans, uh, and then the DCAP plan, which is a district curriculum accommodation plan. Both of those are almost universally not remotely even recognized by colleges. They are basically the equivalent of kind of a helpful memo that helps teachers be aware of learning styles, but there's no actual legal teeth to them. And I I say that and risk getting a lot of angry letters from school systems that say, you know, we take this stuff very seriously, and there certainly are some. But in general, a college, and that's what we're talking about today, is that post-secondary protection, they're not going to weigh any of that with the same weight as an IEP or a 504.
0: So let's say my kid's not going to college. Are there any protections for the workplace?
1: First of all, if they're not going to a traditional two or four-year college, they can still have access to training programs, uh, vocational education. Say I say I want to go and I want to enter into like an eight-month phlebotomy program where I'm specifically just learning this skill and I'm going to get like a certificate, a certificate program or something like that. So it's really not black or white in the post-secondary world. If your kid is going to take their driver's license, for example, if your kid has any kind of formal plan in IEP or 504, and they have relevant accommodations on that plan, you definitely wanna have your school craft a letter so that when your kid goes to take the learner's permit, they get the same accommodations. Uh, If you are someone who is going to be working in like a state licensing, like an electrician or a police officer or a fireman and you're required to take exams, As part of your professional advancement, you definitely want to talk about how how that agency is going to honor the Americans with Disabilities Act and how they're going to recognize your 504 plan and how you can help provide appropriate documentation to do that. Because that's the other thing is there's not really a lot of entitlement here. You can't just walk into the registry and say, give me my accommodations. You can't just walk into the state licensing board and say, give me my accommodations you really want to have a dialogue that says what do you need from me in order to provide me with the you know with the accommodations i am legally entitled to because of my disability and that goes back to the self advocacy piece and really knowing
0: and one of the one of the biggest challenges around around ADHD is that the professional world does not look at it in the same way that the educational world does and that's right. even within a school you can have a school where The kids who have ADHD are completely accommodated and we do what we need for them. But the teachers in the school who have ADHD are just expected to figure it out. And in fact, they probably shouldn't even reveal the fact that they have ADHD because it won't go well for them. That's another thing to keep in mind for kids that are transitioning from high school to the workforce or even from college to the workforce. Sometimes sharing that you have ADHD is not the best idea because there's this bias against it, this assumption that you're not going to do a good job. And there's a weird sort of moral element that comes into ADHD where people start faulting your morals and think you're lazy and stuff, which is not true. Well, I Um, I,
1: got to say that is an unbelievably good point. And and although this is radio, you can't see like my mouth was hanging open when you're talking because that's brilliant. Because part of disability awareness is knowing when to use your inside voice and not necessarily share that. As with any risk of oversharing in any relationship, you really want to ask yourself, what's the cost to benefit ratio? You know, like if I go into my boss and tell them I have ADHD, what am I conceivably going to gain from that? Am I asking that because I want an accommodation from them that is reasonable? Or am I asking that because it appears as an excuse of why I may not be able to do my job?
0: And is there a better way to say it? Like, could you say, I'm having a little trouble staying ahead of the organization side of this job. Can you help me with that? Can I like can I get another filing cabinet that will sort yeah. of help me yeah. put more papers together, or can I not use a filing cabinet and instead use an open-top plastic bin that lets hanging files hold go into it, but never actually shuts, so I'm more apt to go into it and use those papers? Um, yeah,
1: or without even mentioning your disability, you could say something like, you've given me this task to do, I'm going to work on an outline of how I think this, sh- this task should be approached. Would it be okay before I proceed with the task if I just run my game plan by you and maybe you could help me tweak that to be more efficient or more effective for your business? That's part of what I say when I say it's so important to know your disability. Know where your weaknesses are so that you can specifically ask for help in those areas. The world will open up for you if you ask clearly and you ask nicely. So if you know how to ask specifically for the help you need, people are going to want to give that to you. If you go in and you say to your boss, I can't do this ridiculous. Are you serious? Like you want me to take these 20 files and you want me to read them all over the weekend and then prioritize? them? like, that's crazy. Yeah, that's not going to go well. But if you say, could you take a few minutes and sit down with me and show me a strategy that's worked for you for how I can review this data better? That would be really helpful to me doing a better job for you.
0: And that that last thing you said, that last sentence is really important, to do a better job for you, Yeah. right? Yeah, because yeah. you want to frame this as, I want to be successful, you want me to be successful because if I'm successful, you're successful. So awesome. how can I do a better job for you around whatever this task is?
1: Absolutely. Okay, should we abruptly transition to the next topic? Sure. Sparkle, spark, sparkle. Look over here. Documentation. We live in a world where nothing exists unless it's been properly documented. When you are researching colleges, they're going to have a page for disability services, and they are going to specifically tell you what documentation they are going to need in order to provide you with services. They want cognitive testing. They want achievement testing. They want, in cases of a medical disability, like an ADHD, they want some sort of collaborating documents from a doctor or a pediatrician. They also, uh, if there's any kind of performance-based testing, like a a Connors continuous performance test or a a card sorting test, or there's a lot of different other performance-based tests. They may also want to know if there's any social-emotional screeners or teacher feedback or teacher reports or things like that. Now, where do you get this documentation? Because the entire success of your ability to access services rests really on this documentation. Go to those websites for your college and see what they need. More than likely, they're going to want a current IEP or 504 plan, which you should have already. And they're going to want testing that was done within the last five years. Now, the good news is if you are on an IEP, your testing has to be redone every three years. So if you're having a high school experience and they do a proper assessment for you, that will be enough for you to use to get into college. All schools are required to test in areas of suspected disability. Colleges may want more than that. Do not Go to your high school and say, "I need college testing," because they will say to you, "We are not legally required to do that." Uh, so chances are they don't have the time to do that because they're very very busy doing all the testing they are legally required to do. It's it's pretty rare that if you go to your school and say, "Hey, is there anybody who has like an extra ten or twelve hours uh, that can do a comprehensive test for me?" The high schools might say, "You know, we'd love to help you, but." We're so against the wall with what we have to do for our own timelines. We can't do that.
0: I want to backtrack to that real quick because you threw those numbers out like it was no big deal because that's your world. But since it's not the world of our audience, I want to point out that you said, does anyone have an extra 10 or 12 hours? Right. Right. That's a lot of time because I've spoken with parents who sort of give the impression that they think testing is this quick experience where it's "Eh, it's like three or four hours and you're done. And they're, okay, not, right. they're not looking at the other end of it, right? Like, yeah, for you, when you go in to do the testing as the student, as the right. kid or whatever, it's relatively quick. But yeah. for the person who did the testing for the school psychologist, there's a whole back end section to that.
1: Yeah. Where yeah.
0: you're analyzing the data and writing up reports and doing all of that work that stretches Th- it. Thank you
1: for mentioning hours. that.
0: Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's important for our audience to know. Some of the empathy that I'm going to be asking of people to have for ADHD I also want my audience to have that empathy for, for people like school psychologists and teachers who are right. doing a really great job, but a lot of that job isn't seen. And so I okay. that's why I wanted to
1: back that up. Oh, thank you. Uh, for that reason, many people are choosing to go to independent evaluations. There's a lot of really, really talented people out there who are credentialed to do these independent evaluations. They are not cheap. And they are rarely covered by insurance. But you can even call your school psychologist and say, I want to have an outside eval done. Because school psychologists read tons of outside evals. We know who the good ones are and we know who everybody goes to. So if you are interested in documenting this disability and you do want to go to an outside provider, that provider, first of all, I can't say no the way a school psychologist could if you're asking for something that they're not required to do.
0: What are some of the credentials that we should be looking for in an outside evaluator?
1: So you want to make sure that you're dealing with someone who is licensed in school psychology or who's licensed in cognitive psychology, or you could deal with a neuropsych who's practiced in that area. There are a handful of agencies that I will happily recommend parents to because they do a great job.
0: So it sounds like one talk to your school psychologist, they'll know. And that, so that's yeah. a, good, a great place to start. Yeah. Also, we want to be looking at other school psychologists who are just working either as a side gig, or maybe this is all they do when they're not specifically in a school anymore, right. or we want to look at a cognitive psychologist.
1: And also, if your child is accessing any other support services, like if they have a counselor or if they have a pediatrician or if they have an ADHD coach, these people also can help. You can also interview the person that does your testing. I mean, I know that when I'm doing outside evals, which I, I do as a side gig, and when I do them, I always give the first session free because, you know, the, the first phone call or the first meeting, because I want people to know who I am, what my approach is, what I'm offering them.
0: So the historical perspective.
1: Right. So one of the things that's very, very important in documenting a disability, especially ADHD, is a historical perspective. If you have any testing that was done on your kid, I don't care if it was a preschool screening, I don't care if it was, oh, I tried to get them on an IEP in third grade and they, they weren't found eligible. All that is gold to a diagnostician. It is absolute gold because we see patterns, we see strengths and weaknesses that have emerged, we've seen areas of growth, Every good evaluation should have a section of just historical perspective. You know, who is this kid? How did we get here? What are our concerns? How long have these things been concerned? And that's going to be a big piece that the college looks for. So historical perspective certainly makes your case stronger. When I'm doing an outside evaluation for ADHD, and I want to show that there is evidence of ADHD, I take the three-prong approach. I always want to look at a cognitive profile, so I do cognitive testing, because I believe that ADHD has markers. I I call it a cognitive footprint or a cognitive fingerprint. There are certain scores that, in combination, are consistent among most people with ADHD. This is the part of, uh, of psychology that's part art, part science. In my experience, there are cognitive footprints for students with ADHD. And the other thing a folk cognitive will do is it shows you patterns of strengths and weaknesses. It's kind of like a functional map of the brain. What's this kid going to be strongest at? So if I convert my cognitive testing to disability education, I can say when I meet with a student, you did unbelievable on these tasks that involve visual processing. Every single test that had a visual piece to it, you scored 15 points higher than on the auditory tests. And do you use visual accommodations. Do you use charts and graphs? Are you better reporting information if you have a map in front of you or if you have some sort of reference in front of you? Part of the beauty and the benefit of having cognitive testing is sitting down with the person that did the testing and having that explanation of where your strengths really are. Right. Which brings us full circle back to the very first conversation we had in this podcast, which is let the kid feel good about themselves.
0: And, and get them involved. Make sure that they're there listening. Here's your testing. Here's what it means. Let's talk about it. Does this sound right to you? Right. What do you think this might mean in the moving forward? Odds are that kid is going Wait, visual, you mean I could be looking at maps and things while I'm learning in class? That's something right. I should be doing.
1: You just kind of opened up the next conversation. Students interests and transition plans. If your student is on an IEP, They are legally required to have a transition plan at age 14 to 15, depending on where the year falls. And that transition plan is going to indicate what their disability-related needs are for accessing life beyond high school. You want to make sure that if your child has an IEP, part of the process of preparing them is asking your school to sit down with you and really look at that transition planning form and make sure that it's a valuable document. The other thing that you brought up that I think is super important is I do interest inventories, I do learning style inventories, I do work preference inventories, I do work value inventories, because these are all things that the kid needs to know about themselves.
0: Your approach, you said you had a 3 prong approach. It's okay. like a
1: three-pronged stool sitting on a really nice rug. So, the okay. interest stuff is the nice rug. See, I'm visual. <laughs> Let's go to the three prongs first. Okay, so the one prong is the cognitive. Yep. The second prong is going to be the academic. That's going to help you to understand exactly where the strengths and weaknesses are in school related subjects. Where's my reading? Where's my writing? Where's my spelling? Where's my math? Where's my oral expression? So, the other thing that you're going to need to do is you're going to look at performance based tasks of attention. When I am asked to do A boring task, a difficult task, a task that requires me to shift my mindset. How do I do that? Because really, everything else is just theoretical. If I don't know how my performance is impacted, another valuable. If we had a kind of a fourth prong, I know I'm changing the rules. This is terrible. I get so excited. I just want to create more prongs. I'm sorry. This is so exciting, though. You can have a four-prong approach. And then the fourth prong, I guess, is teacher feedback. And a great assessment is going to look at this kid in a variety of settings. So I'm going to have a standardized assessment that I can give a parent. I'm going to have a standardized assessment I can give a teacher. And I'm going to have a standardized assessment that I can give the student. And those three things are going to give me another great snapshot of this kid. So if the kid performs one way at home, one way at school, and has a completely different self-report, boy, that's valuable information. On the other hand, if everybody that's ever met this kid agrees these are their areas of of weakness or need, then that gives more credibility to it. So to recap, you've got cognitive testing, you've got achievement testing, you've got performance-based testing and you've got observations on a standardized battery or some sort of inventory where people can report on this kid. That's what you need to diagnose. If we are looking at actual transition planning, that's when that rug underneath the stool comes in. That's when you get the real benefit of involving the kid. You don't need interest inventories to diagnose ADHD, but you really do need them if you're going to help your kid buy into a transition. So what an interest inventory is, is it's asking a million questions about different tasks, and then your child has to report on some sort of Likert scale or to some degree, whether they're interested in the task or not interested in the task or somewhat interested in the task. Um, And there are all kinds of variations of these. Some even ask, I used to be interested in that, I might be interested in that in the future, I'm interested in that now. So there's all kinds of different ways to report this. For those of you who wanna see a good example of one, There's the ONET. it's literally O-N-E-T, you can Google it, and you can do the interest inventory online, it's free. But the benefit of an interest inventory is they are going to break down what your child has determined is their area that they're interested in. And those tend to look like things like the kid wants to work in industry, or the kid wants to work in the medical field, or the kid wants to work in transportation, but it's not even that specific. There's some broadness to it. And then there are other kinds of inventories that people who do this professionally have, things like work values, What's really important to you at work? And the beauty of it is nothing, none of these inventories are open-ended. This is for people who don't have the vocabulary to share these very kind of high level thoughts of what they want out of an, a work experience. The inventory will say things like, it's important to me that I get along with my coworkers, scale of one to five, or um, I don't like it when people tell me what to do, scale of one to five or whatever. And then at the end of it all, you find out things like, what's more important to you? making a lot of money, having a job with a mission you believe in or working with people you can feel like you're a team with or being able to work alone. And when you think about what do you love about your job, these are the kind of things that you either love or don't love. You know, like uh, for, for some of us, probably most of us that work with kids, we're willing to sacrifice the really, really big bucks, but the things that are more important to us are having a mission or feeling like we're contributing to society. That's part of the picture. If you've got a kid who says to you, listen, I'm not going to lie, I want money. If you're looking at building someone's future for college, you want to listen or at least give them a voice for what do you want out of life? You know, like when you were a little kid, there are people who all want to be veterinarians because they love animals and they love helping. But when you get older and you look around the world, you know, there are some people who are more motivated by money. There are some people who actually like being in power. There are some people that are very anxious at the thought of being in control of anything and they want to be second banana. They don't want to be top dog, you know? So knowing exactly where you want to fit in in the world relating to what values you have is super important. You can go to college and say, I want to be a lawyer, but if you don't have the stomach for some of the difficult decisions that lawyers have to make, that may not work for you in the long run. And then your college degree is, is down the drain.
0: That's a really good point. Every job has stuff about it that is bad. You have to yeah. know what the bad stuff is, right? Like, it, People want to be a vet because they like to pet dogs and cats. But you know what else
1: vets do? No, but no, no. but you true. have
0: to know what's bad about the job and whether or not you can handle it before you fall in love with the job.
1: You know, and one of the things about the ONET interest inventory that you can do online is after you've selected these areas, you can actually click on the jobs and they'll tell you all that. They'll tell you how much that job makes, how much that job requires. I mean, a lot of people want to be vets because they like kittens and puppies, but they don't like the idea of, you know, 12 years of college. They really don't like the idea of having to do medical school. I actually, it's funny that you mentioned that because my career path started, I wanted to be a geneticist. I was absolutely fascinated by the world of genetics. And so I went to college and in my first year, somewhere along the line, I realized, wait a minute, I'm dealing with people who are having children. And part of what a geneticist does is have to advise people in the process of their pregnancy, that those children could potentially have genetic disorders. And then at that point, I said, I'm going to become a poet. I don't have, I I can't do it. (laughs) I, I honestly, like I switched to poetry major because I know me as a human being, I could not walk away at the end of the day, having to tell young couples that their children were not going to make it. Such a great point. I'm so glad you brought that up. Is find a path and don't be afraid to explore the negative parts of a job. You know, everybody watches like these emergency room shows and they all want to be, you know, emergency room doctors, but they don't all have super happy endings. And, yeah. you know, they have long hours and they have difficult families. And-
0: I can remember even in college, I knew a lot of veterinary science majors. But one of the veteran vet science majors I was talking to kept saying, I want to be a vet because I I want to work with animals. I don't like people. One day I just said to him, I was like, all of those pets have owners.
1: <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Exactly. That's the other thing is, you know, do you like to work with people? Do you not like to work with people? Do you like making decisions? I mean, I- I'll tell you right now that one of the things I absolutely love about my job is... I kind of design my own priorities. I don't walk to work every day and do the exact same job. Mm-hmm. Some days I'm testing, some days I'm counseling, some days I'm working with teachers, some days I'm working with students, some days I, don't, I am absolutely not fit to even talk to another human being, so I'm scoring and writing reports. To me, the variety of my day, one of my top priorities in choosing a job to get back to the uh, interest inventory, the learning style inventory. How do you learn best? A good cognitive test is going to help you understand how you learn best. Those are all part of a good transition assessment mm-hmm. is anything that can help the child know a bigger picture of exactly who they are and how they function.
0: And that's a theme that, that's come up again and again in this conversation, right? And as, as we wrap things up, I think it's important to point out that having that kid involved in the conversation, both because they understand themselves better than you do in some ways. And also because they, there might be areas that they don't understand about themselves. And so yeah. learning, yeah. learning that stuff, le- having a better understanding of who they are, whether it's through an interest inventory or through the conversation about the transition plan,
1: right? helping
0: them to understand who they are so that they can make a better choice about what yeah. the future is. So they can say, Yeah, I would love to be a geneticist, but I really couldn't handle telling young couples that their kid's not going to make it. So I'm going to have to do something else. But I'm still a scientist at heart, so I'll go be a school psychologist and do a lot of testing.
1: Kids have to feel valued and and empowered. If you take all the choices away from a a student who's trying to transition, then they're going to not make good choices when you're not there. So you really want to give them the ability to make choices, even if you don't agree. Here's the other thing, and this is the psychologist in me. If I know what my disability is and I also know what my strengths is, it shifts the locus of control. I know that I'm in control of my life. If I'm living in a world where bad things just happen to me because I have a disability and I can't succeed no matter what, I'm giving all my power to an outside force, whether it be fate or luck or other people looking at me funny. But people who understand their own disability, they tend to have a more internal locus of control, where they believe they're in control of their life and they make better decisions that way. If you help write a transitional plan, you're going to be more personally invested in seeing it success. They're going to be able to be in that dorm room when you're not there and make good decisions. They're going to be able to go into their counselor's office and say, I need a teacher with this, this, this learning style. You can't always be there for them.
0: Right. And also getting them involved and having them take the lead in things Is saying to them, I believe in you, you can do it. When the parent is trying to take control of of these transition plans, what they're saying is, I don't think you can do it. That might not be what they want to be saying, but often that's the message that gets delivered to the kid.
1: Really, I've never had so much empathy since my daughter turned 15. Like, I really do understand. I mean, when your kid is five years old and they have a disability, you become mama bear. Like, you become this, like, fierce advocate for your kid. You don't want anybody making fun of your kid. You don't want anybody picking on your kid. You don't want your kid not getting the services they need. You go into this very, very proactive parenting mode. And now all of a sudden your kid's 15 and a half and you're thinking, I gotta shift gears. And that's not always easy to do. So I I don't want to make light of it's easy to talk about what we're talking about, but I, I do really see that it's not easy.
0: Right. It's a hard road to walk down. Because there's no instruction manual for it. There's all kinds of books about what to do if your kid has ADHD for them. There's not as much information about what to do as a parent for yourself. That's part of my mission with this podcast is to help parents understand what it's going to be like for them as well as what it's like for their kids and and normalize that. One of the best things that comes with community is the ability to say me too. That me too stuff is huge because we walk through life thinking we're the only ones and then all of a sudden we find out, oh wait, there's other parents who have kids with ADHD. And I knew that, I just didn't really know it. I was sort of vaguely aware of the fact that this must be true, but I hadn't actually met any other parents with kids with ADHD. However you want to end it, whatever important points you have, uh, share that. Yeah,
1: so we definitely want to stress the importance of getting a good assessment done. To document your kid's disability, we want to talk about making sure that whatever plan you have in place currently, whether it be an IEP or 504, is well written and that you understand it and that it's current and updated if it needs to be. We don't want to forget the fact that the kid has to have a voice doing things like interest inventories and. Getting them to be invested in the process is super important. Know who your friends are. Know where you can get help and support. Do you know your kid's guidance? counselor? do you know your kid's special ed liaison? Don't be afraid to pay for good advice if you if you need to have professional assessment or a professional ADHD coach, or if you need someone to help you, because oftentimes the time you will save and the BS and the paperwork you can cut through going through a professional is definitely going to make the process more more meaningful to you.
0: Hey, you're still here? Nice. Thanks for staying focused all the way through. If you have any thoughts or questions about today's episode, feel free to email me at Brendan at ADHD And don't forget to check out the website ADHDessentials.com and visit our Facebook community. I'm looking forward to talking to you again next week. In the meantime, keep focusing on improvement over perfection. 10% better is all you need.